If you're new with us, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, teach most Sundays, so that's who I am. Um, Check this out. In four Sundays, we will enter the Advent season, which takes us to Christmas. Can you believe it? Yep, it's still 88 degrees outside. (laughs) Fanning yourself already? Yeah. But yeah, and so that'll bring our church family back around to the beginning of the Jesus story, uh, which will take us through uh, all the way through Easter, uh, looking at his life and obviously his death and resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so what we decided to do with these few weeks left between uh, really last Sunday and the beginning of the Advent season uh, was to reflect on five things that matter uh, deeply to our church family. And so you can call it a vision series. You can call it just a, hey, these are what matter to us series. That's kind of a better name, I think. And uh, you say vision series and people just yawn, you know, like, hmm, vision, that sounds like work. Um, But the thing I said last week, and I want to repeat, is that these things are not unique to us. These things that matter to us, that are special to us, are not unique to our church. Uh, They are, in fact, just things that come straight from the storyline of the scriptures and are simply pictures of what it looks like to follow Jesus as an individual, but also as a family, because we do that as a church family as well. And so these are just pictures of what that looks like that we get from the storyline of the Bible anyway. So if you're new with us, it's kind of a good, it's a good season to sit with us for a few weeks. You can kind of learn uh, what's important to us, what matters to us. And I encourage you, and of course everyone, um, to latch on for the next few weeks and learn what it means to be a part of this church family. Last week, we talked about this word right here, the word generosity. Um, and we didn't talk about giving to the church on a weekly basis. We talked about our collective generosity as a church family, shown most for us through our annual Beyond Sunday uh, initiative, which is where, as Joel said earlier, we take up this big offering and uh, we give that away to mission work uh, here in the city and around the world. Also said last week, since we've been doing this since 2009, we've collected and given away over $400,000 to mission work. Uh, So if you weren't here last week, that really got a lot of applause, but don't do it this week um, because it's just weird. But but we talked about generosity, but again, not the individual kind, that's a whole nother uh, topic, but just the collective kind as a church that we can get behind something and we can support uh, something as a church family. So that was pretty exciting. Um, today, I've entitled today's message, uh, Journey. Say the word journey. journey. By the way, is anybody a fan of the band Journey? I don't mean ironically. <laughs> I mean like you're genuinely a fan. The, the numbers went way down. So... <laughs> My son and I ride to school. I don't go to school. He goes to school. I take him to school every day. And uh, we live as far as you can from his high school uh, without having to go to a different high school, which happens to just be a mile from us. But so it's always a 30-minute ride to get there. And it's just, it's just stoplights and whatever. So we listen to the radio. He's into the same music. But we listen to this radio station. I don't know if you guys knew those existed. There's like radio stations. It's really cool. Uh, but there's this radio station. And we have the app for it, so we kind of know what's coming. We can see what's coming next, and he's always just like, here comes Journey, you know, because we just think Journey's terrible. All right. <laughs> that band was uh, formed and, and made for couple skating. That's just pretty much what that band was for. <laughs> when I hear Journey, like, I just have these feelings of, you know, fifth grade at Playland Skate Center in Brookhaven. Guess I got to go find a girl. I got to go find somebody to hold my hand you know, as we circle the, circle the rink. All right. That was just a terrible illustration. 
But anyway, this is the title of our message today. It's called Journey. I like this word, by the way. It happens to, uh, the Hebrew word for this is the word derek. So we have the next slide here. Uh, this is actually what derek means. Uh, it means journey or way or path or road. So I like this word. I mean, it's, uh, my name fills the Bible uh, as, as you move at least through the Hebrew texts. Uh, life itself is a journey and so is faith. Jesus, in fact, said, uh, about himself in John 14, verse 6, at least the first part, he said, I am the know? way. So there's this real sense in which following Jesus is a, I'm going to make up a word here, a movemental kind of thing, just like we're moving. It's not static, it's not just intellectual, but behavioral uh, as well. In fact, one of the most common names for followers of Christ in the first, second, and even third centuries uh, was people of the way. Christian only comes up three times in the New Testament. The majority of the time, people were called disciples, uh, Nazarenes, people of the way. Uh, the Romans called them atheists, which is an interesting thing. Um, but most of the time, you see, this, you see this name of just journey. These people are people on a journey behind Jesus. Now, part of that journey of faith, and this is where we want to sit today for a few minutes, is uh, part of the journey of faith is wandering, not wandering, but just wandering off. Part of the journey of faith is being a wanderer. Now, I've been a follower of Jesus since the mid-80s, um, and there have been all kinds of exit ramps and excursions and ditches along the way for me. And I would, I would assume that that's the same for you as well, because we all wander off. And the church family, and this is what I want to sit with you today, is that the church family must be a place of safety for people who wander off and who wander back in. That's always been a thing for me. Uh, I happened to go to a youth group growing up that was that way, and so I just took that with me into uh, my time as a pastor. And so it's always important for me, but it must be important for us to be a church that's very comfortable with people who wander off and who wander back in, because that's just part of the faith journey. So the journey that I want to talk about this morning is the journey people are on to find their way back to God. Let's say that together, to find their way back to God. Now, it's easy to think, oh, that's somebody else because we're in this building and so we, that doesn't apply to us. But we all sort of wander off from time to time. So this includes all of us. We're always on the road to find our way back and closer to God. Today's story is something we're just going to dust off. It's probably very familiar to many of you. I always hesitate to do these really familiar stories because, you know, it's, it is what it is. But Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, it's a long one, uh, but that's our story today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. This is the story that's also called the story of the prodigal son. Are you familiar with this? This is the story that's also called the story of the prodigal son. Now, that's not a title that Jesus gave it and it doesn't even appear in the story. In fact, the first time we ever hear that title would be from uh, the fourth century theologian named Jerome, uh, who wrote, I guess, an article, I don't know what you'd call it in the fourth century, on something he entitled The Prudent and the Prodigal Sons. Um, and so that's where we get the title from, but it's nowhere in the story. It is implied, and you'll see that uh, in a moment, but uh, the title Prodigal Son, I think, messes with how we understand the story. Uh, prodigal, when you hear the word prodigal, you think of runaway or this kind of person who just gets up and jams and just ruins his or her life uh, away from a safe place and then tries to return and, um, you know, make things right. And I think when we hear the word prodigal son, 
uh, and in many cases in the room, prodigal daughters. Um, it messes with how we understand and read the story. Because here's the thing that you need to know, and this is what we're going to look at today. There are actually two sons in the story, and both are lost. And this is one of like the, one of the most incredible stories Jesus tells to where you don't see this if you're not listening for it. But the more lost son in the story is actually not the one who runs away, but the one who stays put. And so we're going to look at that today from maybe a different perspective so, uh, than you're used to. All right, are you ready? All right, here we go. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus starts by saying, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them. So this is a conversation we've all had with our dad. Um, Now, the Bible is uh, very comfortable with this whole two sons, a man who had two sons kind of thing. In fact, Israel's history uh, is very familiar with this. The first two sons that we have in the Bible are Cain and Abel. Uh, Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, yeah, got a little quiet there. People are like, (laughs) Jesus, Jesus, (laughs) bring a friend. All right, Uh, (laughs) those are the top five answers, right? Jesus, God, Bible, Holy Spirit, bring a friend. Uh, (laughs) Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Yeah, so this narrative of people having two sons fills the pages of Israel's scriptures. And all three of at least those examples are basically stories of conflict and tension and uh, betrayal and renewal and restoration. And so when Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, I just assume the listeners anticipate something with conflict and tension. And I actually think many of the listeners thought to themselves, Jacob, this is about Jacob. Uh, there's all kinds of connections to the story of the prodigal son and the story of the life of Jacob and Esau. And so I just assume people are listening to Jesus begin this story and they're making connections to their own history. Now, the younger son, re, re, his request to his father is drastic. He asks his father for his share of the property or of the estate uh, or what's coming to him. It's what's in the will. Uh, this, the reason this is drastic is the son is basically saying to his father, I cannot wait for you to die. Like literally, I cannot wait for that to happen, so just go ahead and give me what's mine. It's an, another way of saying this is that you are already as good as dead to me, so just go ahead and give me what's mine. So it's a very powerful, the people in the audience have to be thinking, well, kill the son, just kill him. Like this is, this is definitely a very drastic way to approach your father. Now the word property here. Um, that Jesus uses is a bad translation for, uh, for us, but it's the word bios in the Greek, which means life. Give me my share of your life, the thing that is deeply connected to you. And so it says that the father divided his property between them, but you could also read that, that he tore his life in two for the son. Now, depending on how you see this, there are some in the audience who are thinking, wow, what a gracious and loving father. Some are thinking, what a conniving little kid and a weak, spineless dad. 
So there, you've got two approaches here to people listening to the story. A lot of theologians and scholars say, this father is terrible. He's making terrible decisions to a kid who probably does this a lot. But our focus, of course, is on the son. He's dirty. He's deceitful. He's like the other younger brother of great fame in Israel's story, Jacob, who also deceived his father out of an inheritance. Now, what happens next is what always happens next. This kid just got up and left the home, the family, the history, the safety, and he just did his own thing to live his own life on his own terms, and he made a willful decision to wander. This is very important. So as the listeners of the story like you and the people listening to Jesus tell this story, the decision to wander is a willful one. It's an intentional decision in this story. Um, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller, who lives, in, who lives and pastors in Manhattan, talks about how cities, uh, Manhattan, Atlanta, L.A., New, wherever, uh, cities tend to be filled with what he calls younger brothers, people who are essentially trying to break from the family narrative and just make their own way in a new place, away from what they're used to, away from where they grew up, away from the old ways, and just making a new way into a new city and hopefully into a new life. But it is true, as long as I've pastored in this city, it is true. When I talk to many of you about your stories, there is a sense in which there's a younger brother element to it. Why did you move here? Why, do, why are you in this place? Why did you want to come here? And it's this kind of, I'm really trying to break free of some of the molds that I grew up in. And so there's this willful, doesn't mean you're wandering, it just means that this is very common for a lot of people. Now, this story is about everyone's story of faith. None of us is without what I would say are the wear and tear and the scars of distracted journeys with God. All of us have those. If you don't, then you're not doing it. You're not doing it right. It's an, if, if faith has not injured you, it, at this point, it's only an intellectual ascent, but it is not a physical behavioral ascent. And so everybody's story of faith is not without wear and tear and scars from distracted journeys. And so this story that Jesus tells about this son who comes and tells his dad that he's as good as dead, give me what I need, and everybody's mad at him, he leaves, and of course, everybody knows what happens next. Uh, the part two, I'm skipping a lot of this because it's so long, but in part two, uh, what happens is the story unfolds with the kid doing exactly what you think would happen. His life falls apart because he thinks he can make it on his own, and he goes out and his life falls apart. He sells himself out just to make money, just to eat, just to survive, but he makes this decision to come home, and this is sort of a nice turn in the story. Notice what it says in verses 20 through 24. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the very, 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 very early prototype sort of people in the audience who are starting to learn about psychology and how family dynamics work are thinking when Jesus tells this story, the father is completely reinforcing this idiot. That's what they're thinking. I guarantee you the first century Jewish listener is thinking, this is a terrible father. 
Uh, and so the kid does that. Verse 21, and the son said to him, he's got a whole speech as we do when we come home late. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, <laughs> uh, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. It's a big ring. Um, and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of my, this, my, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to, what's the word? Celebrate. This is actually the turn in the story. I mean, we're all listening to it and we're like, gosh, okay. And we find ourselves in some interesting places uh, if we're trying to connect to a character in our own life. But this word celebrate is really important, which we'll come back to in a moment. Now, this is the part of the story that matters to us, but it only it only matters because it sets up what is to come. And here we see the love of the Father, rightly allegorized throughout church history as God in the story. God is often fiscally irresponsible when it comes to grace and mercy and letting people just return. He's not very good at changing people, but he is good at receiving people. And in this story, we see the picture of the father and his love, again, rightly allegorized as God, embracing the returned runaway as if nothing had happened. Now, we all know that's bad, but we all like it when that's us. Are you with me on that? We all know that is a terrible way to raise a kid, but we don't mind it when our parents do that. So there's something there. Now, this is one, I say one, but this is one of the pictures of grace in the story. Grace is unreasonable, grace is irresponsible, grace is um, not very wise. But it is what it is, and this is one of the pictures of grace in the story. And this part is a reminder for all of us who will take, will take, because we do, will take prodigal paths in the future, that the return home is always met with celebration and joy. So if there's a takeaway, even for the early listeners, it's simply, if I come back, and I will because I always run away. I am met with celebration and joy, not with the very human-natured scorekeeping condemnation that we're all used to. So this is, the, this is the big lesson of grace in the story. But I love this last part because remember there's another son. And the other son, before we get to this one part, is still out in the field. I'm going to read this to you I don't have the full thing on the screen because I just want you to listen, and then we'll put something on the screen that will help make sense of this. In verse 25, it says, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked uh, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf uh, because he received him back safe and sound. And then look at this verse here, verse 28. But he was, what, angry and refused to go in. He was angry and refused to go in. Now this story is the third in a set of three. The first story Jesus tells is the story of the lost sheep. Then he tells the story of the lost coin. And then he tells the story of the lost sons. Now, in the first two stories, well, actually all three, it's the rhetorical value is very high. Uh, something in the story, something in all three stories is lost. 
And the value of what is lost in each story goes up with each following story. Uh, one sheep out of 100 is lost in the first story, so 1%. Uh, one coin out of 10 is lost in the second story, so 10%. But both sons are lost in this story, which is 100%. And so the, the value goes up of what is lost. Now, what's interesting is that at the center of each story is the issue of wholeness, relationships and wholeness. Wholeness is at the center of all three. Being restored is at the middle of each story. And so in each story, there's a search for what is lost, and then there is a celebration. The first two stories end in parties and celebrations, so they end well. This one ends in the field where we find the father discovering that his other son is also lost, that he just can't see it, and that he refuses to participate in the celebration of his brother coming home. Now, Jesus says things about lost people all the time. Uh, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke's gospel. It ends with Jesus saying, I've come to seek and save the lost. And this word lost gets thrown around. We tend to think what lost means is you don't know Jesus or you don't, you're not a Christian or something like that. But lost to Jesus, especially in Luke's account, has nothing to do with that. Lost is always connected with not participating in God's work among the poor and the needy but also not seeing God's hand at work in the world. That's what lost means when Jesus talks about lost, that you're not involved in the work with the needy and the poor, and that also you don't see God's hand at work in the world. Let me explain this. Years ago when I started working here, um, the worship leader at the time and I decided that Backstage one day, we would just start doing devotions. We had never done devotions before. We practiced, and then I didn't play, but they practiced, and then we went out and did our thing, right? And uh, so I led the devotion the first time, and the whole band was back there. And I said, okay, let's just go around. What I would like to do is just, if we can just go around the room here and share one or two. See, I, I got too greedy when I said or two. Uh, I said, share one or two ways that you have seen God work in the life of this church over the last year, right? And it was just like this. Okay, I mean, just like it was really awkward. I just sort of sat there. I was a youth pastor for many years before I came here. I was like, I can just wait this out. <laughs> Someone's going to say Jesus in a minute. Like, and Jamie and I just sat there while it was almost like, and you could see him like, pretending to think of things. They were just like, you know, and no one said a word. No one. There wasn't even like a, I'm out. I don't have anything today. Let me pray about that, right? There wasn't even that go-to response of like, you know what? Let me really contemplate that before I get back with you. And it was a very weird moment because it was like, wow, how do they not see things? That's what Jesus means when he says lost, is that we can't even see God's hand at work. Being lost in this story is the refusal to participate in the celebration of a restored relationship. That is why the father pleads with the older son saying these words, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother <laughs> was dead and is alive. He was lost and is what? Found. The father begs the son to just see it, 
Can you just open your eyes and see it? But the son just says, I'm not going in there. I'm not going in there. And this is how the story ends, by the way. Luke is famous for this in his gospel. Always ending these controversial stories that Jesus tells or that he's a part of, he doesn't include what happens next. So the ending isn't really an ending. It's always an invitation for us to decide what the ending will be for us. That's what Luke is doing. What will the ending be for us? I'm not going in there. And the dad says, but you have to. We have to celebrate people being restored in their relationship and in their faith with God. And then it just moves to the next story. It hands us the endings. We choose. Let me talk for just a second about Jesus and tables. Luke's gospel account is fashioned around eight or nine different stories of Jesus having meals with people. And it's fixed around all these different stories where Jesus is at a table. He's sharing food with people. And every single story of Jesus sharing a meal with somebody is controversial. Jesus always drops a bomb at these meals. He always drops something on the table that creates controversy, inviting the wrong people, um, saying the wrong thing, sitting at the wrong seat, oh my gosh, sitting in someone's spot, uh, reworking the social structures, you name it. There's always something controversial intense at these meals. In fact, just before this story in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells another parable about God's banquet, God creating a banquet for all of humanity and who he's inviting to his table. And I'm paraphrasing this parable, but it basically says God is having a party. So are you coming? That's how, that's the parable. And the whole, and the parable is interesting because nobody comes. And so it's just Jesus saying, this is what happens. God is like throwing a party for people who are coming to him and being restored, and nobody cares. That's what happens sometimes. We all become the older brother where we just say, I'm not going. I'm not going in there. They deserve what they get. And the, the purpose here is simply this, that the church's job, it has many roles in our lives and in society, but one of our primary jobs is simply to set the table and to make room for people. The church's job is to set the table. God is announcing and creating a banquet, to use that language, for the whole world. And the church's job is to set chairs out and to make room. Now, uh, let me close with this. A couple of things that I find very beautiful about um, Sunday mornings around here, and it happens before you get here, is the teams that come in to set up uh, for church. So here's what we're going to do. If you guys, here, here you go. Here's a, here's a table. Uh, you guys are going to put the legs on that, okay? Um, here they are, by the way. It's Ikea, so it may or may not work. So uh, <laughs> if you'll put the legs on and uh, do it quickly, this story isn't very long. So now I know we're in the middle of recruiting people for setup, but that's not what this is about. But if you're so moved, okay, if you're so moved by this, uh, and the hard thing about the setup team is that it's early. The band comes in at 7.30, the main floor and the kids' teams come in at 8, and they start to set things up. This is a picture, by the way, of the shed. You're wondering what the shed is. This is the shed out back behind this uh, window down by the train tracks, and that's where all the kids' stuff goes after church. 
So our teams come down and they open the back door, hopefully the alarm is turned off, and then they go to the shed and they pull all this stuff out to set up the downstairs, which is a pretty incredible operation. Uh, and then it all goes back in there afterwards. Now luckily we've been down here seven months, it has never rained, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, but we're waiting for that. And just beyond this are the train tracks. We're trying to figure out some safety things because a, a lot of the team members, some have children and they love to go out and help. And we're just like, maybe we shouldn't let them run down the tracks, you know, <laughs> towards CNN. But, um, but anyway, so this is a picture of things that, this is the backstage of our building. And so you can sort of see that. But it's always cool to see the teams come in. And I never get a chance to do like this sort of, <laughs> well done. Well done. Yeah, so there's a lot of these downstairs. Uh, so, and anyway, so they come and they set up things and they, you know, they, they lay out, uh, for the kids, they lay out like the craft pieces and uh, whatever they're going to need for the day. It's always a really cool thing. But I, I know they're not thinking this as they're doing it. They're watching the clock and thinking we've got to go because Waffle House will be closed. Uh, it's closed, so we've got to get there. But, um, and then... There's the upstairs where people set the chairs up that you're sitting in. Aren't they comfortable? They're not, I know. Uh, I do want to warn you, there was a large amount of glitter on these from something last night. So some of you may have what, uh, what we call the herpes of crafts. Uh, it doesn't, it never goes away. So. Oh, what, whatever, like whatever, whatever. <laughs> You say worse on your Facebook posts. All right. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway. Now, here's what's happening when that takes place. There's a few things going on when we do the work to get this space set up. One is that we know that we need to because you guys are all coming. But there's also this nice underlying beauty that there's this expectation of people arriving and sitting. And we don't always know who's coming. I mean, this is our church. This is probably half of our church. This is the way this works for us. Next week, it'll be different. I've said that I can just do the same sermon twice because uh, of the cycle, the traveling and whatever. There's a lot of people in this congregation uh, that come in, and then there are new people that come in. And the thing is, as it was, uh, I remember this in youth ministry, Wednesday nights were always weird because that was our big um, thing. And you never know what was going to walk in the door on a school night. So here come a hundred kids and one by one it's the date said yes to the prom. Next kid didn't make the football team, just found out today. Next kid, uh, mom's having another baby. Great. Next kid, mom and dad are getting a divorce. Next kid. And the stories are always weird. And then they come in and I'm like, let's talk about Jesus and the banquet. You know, they don't care. Uh, it was always a hard gig because the stories that come in dictate how they hear everything. And, um, but what it, what it taught me was you don't really know what's wandering back in the door. And the number one thing that we would tell our team is that first and foremost, this must be a safe place for whatever stories walk in. And we must respond accordingly with grace and celebration and joy and on and on and on. And so when we're setting up this room on Sundays, there's a little bit of that. There's this, 
We're putting chairs out. We know they'll be filled. I mean, look around. We have four chairs left over here. Two of our elders met with the owners of this building last week just to talk about the future, how we're, how we're going to try and make more space for people. The kids' area, as amazing as it is, is very small. It needs more space, but we don't know how to do that in a concrete building uh, that's pretty much locked in. And so there are things that we're already thinking about because more and more people are, are wandering in by, by their invitation or just walking by. I had four today, I had four Packers fans. I don't know why they're here this early. Uh, we got the parent-child drop-off sign out here. Every, to, to a person, every Packers fan, it's like a thing, I guess. Every Packers fan goes, is this where I drop my dad off? My mom off? <laughs> Keep moving. All right. Uh, anyway, so I think it's important to, to see the beauty of what happens when we just lay chairs out. And what we're doing is not just making room for all of you, but we're participating in setting God's table. Because there are going to be people, and you, most certainly there are people in this room that this applies today, that there is a real sense in which you are on a uh, distracted, fogged out journey to figure out where God is in all of this. And you come here. And here's the thing about this prodigal son story. If I'm thinking deeply about it, I don't worry about what will happen if I become the prodigal. I don't worry about that. It's in the story. It's in the story. It's very clear. If I become the prodigal, I already know. Every return home is met with undue grace and with celebration and joy, period. I already know the ending to that. I don't worry about what happens if I become the prodigal. I worry about becoming the prodigal. Trust me, that's not like my goal in life. And I have things around me that protect me from those things. But I don't worry about what happens if I do become the prodigal. I worry most about what will happen if I become the older brother. Happy with the extra space. A joy with the absence of a runaway brother or sister. Smug and overprotected. And the worst part loathsome if he comes home. That's what I worry about the most. And churches also have the potential to become the older brother. And this is what I want to close with today. It's so easy to focus on the, the homecoming of the son. That seems to be an individual lesson. But as a community, the lesson is in the life of the older brother, that we must not become the older brother, happy with the extra space, joy with the absence of runaway people, and loathsome if so-and-so returns or comes. Now, I would say we're not that way at all, but it's just a good reminder as we continue on in our path downtown figuring out how we're going to do church in this location, but also provide more room for more people who are finding their way back to God. We are here to make room for prodigals and wanderers and to be a safe place 
where people find their way back to God and where we stand guard, all of us, where we stand guard so everyone has the space and the protection to work out their own faith. Amen? We've always said that in some way, like this should be a safe place where people can work out their faith. And so that's the role that we all have, is to protect that and to champion that and to keep putting out chairs for people who are wandering and finding their way back to God. Let me pray, and then Jeff's going to come up and get us ready for uh, communion, and then I'll come back up and dismiss us. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for this story. It's so familiar to many of us um, that it's easy to just pass over, but there's some stuff in here um, that your son said that's quite powerful. And God, I know that for some in the room, it's just all they wanted to hear was um, that there's grace for them at the return, and that's, we praise you for that because that's what they need to hear. But God, as a community, I pray that you um, create a sense of healthy fear that we might end up, that we would never end up like the older son just standing out there, not wanting to come in, not wanting to celebrate, not wanting to participate in the thing that you're doing in the world, which is restoring all things, making all things new, and that includes people. And if that's something we don't want to celebrate, God, teach us that we are lost in that and help us find our way back to you and into those parties of celebration and joy that are based in grace. And, uh, and so we just, we pray for that as a church family as we continue our journey downtown, that you help us see those who are searching, that you help us uh, encourage those who are broken, that this will be a place where people find healing, and new life in so many ways and give us the strength and the eyes to see it and to participate in it. It's in your name that we pray and everyone said, amen.